Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Genesis, where we are covering chapters 1 to 11. Genesis was a, is a book written by Moses, and it can be divided up into two parts. That's chapters 1 to 11, so it covers basically the history from the start all the way up until the history of Abraham. And then 12 to the end covers Abraham and then his descendants after him. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Joshua. Uh, but for now, at least until the beginning of March, we're going to look at Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And Genesis is a book about beginnings. That is what Genesis means, beginnings. And so chapter 1, we see the beginning of the universe as created by God. Chapter 2 deals with the, God's creation of man. So man made in his image, God's image, designed to image God to one another and in fact to the universe. And we see there that man was given protection. They were provided for. And they were even given companionship as woman was made for man and given to man. And they possessed great dignity, great value, equally. Chapter 3 touches on the beginnings of sin in man. And there we see that man rebelled against their God, their creator, their provider, and they broke his command. And in so doing, in effect, they became gods unto themselves. They determined what was good and right for themselves. And they basically took God's law and said, okay, forget it. I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever it is that I want to do. And then Genesis 4, 5, and 6 are really just steps that lead us down the path of depravity. Or down, down the path of ever-increasing sinfulness. So where Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3, you see Cain sins against Abel by killing him. And then it goes on, Cain's descendants sin. So Lamech, he boasts about his vengeful murder. And then eventually we're left in this dismal state. And Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so that's the setting that we find ourselves in today as we begin looking at Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. And from today's passage we see that God is not indifferent towards sin. God is not indifferent towards sin. In other words, he doesn't stand there idly sort of just watching it, just twiddling his thumbs as if he doesn't care. But he actually judges it. And at the same time, he saves the righteous. So that's what we see today. From today's passage, we see that God is not indifferent towards sin, but he judges it and saves the righteous. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6 if you haven't already. <clears throat> and this is what it reads there in 6 verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. And that there, that phrase, these are the generations, is an indication that a new section of Genesis has started. And the, the main focus here is going to be on the person of the generations. These are the generations of Noah. And so naturally, we're going to go and head on in towards the story about Noah. But look there at 11 and 12, and you see this, the situation, the setting that people are in there. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their own, their way on earth. So you get the picture where God is surveying his whole entire creation, right? 
all of them are corrupt and were corrupting. So it's not only are they, are they, is their state something, they're corrupt, but they're actually corrupting others, it would seem. And it's a stark contrast to Genesis chapter 1. And it's meant to be. And there God says in verse 31 of chapter 1, it is God surveys all of his creation and he says, Behold, it was very good. Here, though, just a handful of chapters later, the earth is now filled with violence and corruption. These two words tell us a lot about the situation. They're corrupt. It tells of something it sh- of, of something that's happened where the beautiful and good situation that once was is now ruined, spoiled, twisted. So the beautiful situation that once was is disfigured. And destroyed. That's what the word corrupt means. It actually means sort of disfigurement or destroyed. Violence there. Violence is a term that refers specifically to social violence and conditions in human society where social justice is lacking. It's a term that refers specifically to social violence and conditions in human society where social justice is lacking. And so what does God do as he surveys all of his creation? who were corrupt and corrupting, well, he determines to judge. Look there in, in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So what God is going to do here, it's using the language of destroy. It's actually, again, the same term used to describe what man was already doing. So they are corrupt, they are corrupting, they are already destroyed. Man is disfigured and destroying themselves. And the language makes it plain to us that the people God decided to destroy had virtually self-destroyed already. So in many ways, this is God giving people over to their own sin. He says, look, if this is what you guys want, then I'll go ahead and let you live in it. I will give you over to what you want. And then I'm going to judge you just as I told you. And we see that that happens oftentimes if you read throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So these people are pursuing evil by doing. They're corrupt. They're corrupting. But they also pursue evil by rejecting, by refusing to believe. They're refusing to believe. So they were rejecting God's will and way. And this involved rejecting God's messenger and his message. Enter in Noah. In the midst of a crooked generation, God's favor was with Noah. And that's what it says in 6 verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And there you see the characteristics of, of who this person is. He is righteous, so he's personally holy. He is blameless, which means without evident flaw. So this doesn't mean that he never sinned. A way to translate this is that he is alone amidst his contemporaries. He stands out amidst his contemporaries, even though they are sinful, and he is too Yet he stands out because he walks with God. He's wholly devoted to God, pursuing him fully, submitting to God's ways and his will. But interestingly, scripture says that Noah was not only an example of righteousness. It says that he was a preacher of it as well. And that's found in 2 Peter 2.5. It says there, Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. So here you can, you can imagine he's just heralding righteousness. That is God's way and God's will and his law. 
in a world of the ungodly. And uh, it's interesting to note that there is good reason to believe that God appointed Noah to preach to and even against the culture around him and to warn them of God's wrath to come. So presumably he did so as he was building this massive ark. Right, the whole entire time he's taken to build this massive ark, he has to then preach to the people as a herald of righteousness. And just imagine all the, the, the mocking and the scoffing people threw at this man Noah who's just sitting there building this gargantuan ark in that day while people, the New Testament says, were eating and drinking, socially violent. They were corrupt and corrupting. And here's this man building this boat Standing for righteousness. And some people took, think that this process took 120 years. So in other words, as he's building this boat for 120 years, he's also preaching judgment and salvation against the people. So if you look there in 6 verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. So there, there's a couple ways of looking, uh, of understanding that. Some people say that that means that God, therefore, generally speaking, is going to limit, generally again, uh, limit the age of man to about 120 years. Another way of looking at it is saying that judgment is going to come in 120 years. My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days, that is what's left of this known world, are 120 years. So regardless, here's Noah. Let's say it is 120 years. He's building this boat, taking a very long time. And at the whole time, the whole time, he is a herald of righteousness. He's a preacher. Now, some people, they're tempted to read this Noah account because it moves so quickly and just think, oh, this is God. This God of the Bible, his judgment is sort of arbitrary. It's random. He sort of turns up and then all of a sudden he's flooding the whole entire world but it's amazing that god says in first peter three twenty that god had displayed his patience in the days of noah patience in the days of noah let's just assume it's 120 years that's 120 years where people had the opportunity to hear about the salvation of god and then also to repent and turn to him and embrace him to turn from their sin. As, and then God leaves the people, these wicked people, with a witness, right? It's Noah the righteous man who goes around heralding the gospel. Also in Peter, it talks about how the spirit of Christ was preaching to the people in this day through this particular man. Fascinating, isn't it? So don't think here that, that God's judgment is arbitrary and random, that he flies off the cuff. No, here... God displays his patience in the days of Noah. Look then at what God commands him to do in verse 14. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, no one really knows what kind of wood this is, but regardless, he needed a lot of it as he was supposed to build this chest or this box. Uh, and then he was supposed to cover it inside and out with pitch or tar. And this thing had three decks and the dimensions were 450 feet long 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. That's 95,000 square feet, people say. Which means, you know, if you're looking at a 1,500 square foot home, which is the equivalent of the Ings home, or let's say my home, that's 63 of them. Okay, so you can fit a lot of animals in there. 
I think people had measured it out, and you know, people have wondered, well, how in the world did they fit so many animals in there? And they determined that you could fit comfortably, you know, something like 200 plus sheep in one cargo car. And that's only just a little cargo car. Here we're looking at 95,000 square feet of animals. Uh, it's incredible. And of course, the purpose of the ark is to provide safe passage for Noah and his family through the flood. Look at 17. He says, for behold, I will bring a flood upon a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then look at 18. It says, but that's a strong word of hope there. But so out of the out of this entire crooked generation, for some reason, God sets his favor upon these particular people. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your sons, wives with you and of everything living, everything of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds. So again, there's this language, their kinds. It goes back to Genesis one and of the animals according to their kinds and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And then you see this wonderful display of of Noah's righteousness, his faith. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Interesting fact, you see this ark or the language of ark and pitch one more time in scripture. And you know where that's found? It's the little ark covered in pitch that carried the little baby Moses to life. Fascinating, isn't it? That here God is using one man in this ark covered with pitch to lead his people, this future whole entire world to safety as God judges the people. And then in Moses, God uses one man to lead his people Israel as God judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Look there at the flood then in Genesis chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. Here God tells Noah to go into the ark. And it's a little bit more specific on what kind of animals were to join him. It wasn't just simply one pair of that particular animal. For the clean animals, um, seven pairs were to go into the ark presumably for offering and then also to preserve their line. And then seven days after God tells Noah to go into the ark, the floods finally arrive. And look how specific the story is. This is fascinating. And I think attests to the historicity of the, the account. Look at seven verse 11. It says in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, it's so specific, isn't it? This would be a day that Noah would never forget. That date that he would recount to his children and their children and their children's children about this wonderful story about how God delivered his people in the midst of judgment. And then notice how the beginning of the flood is described. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So again, it's going back to Genesis chapter 1, where God separated the waters below 
and then the waters above, right? And so here, what he's doing, this language on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So where in Genesis 1, he separates the waters from above and below. Here in the flood, it's like God moves things back together. He's undoing what he had done. He's bringing this creation back to the original created state, which was without form and void. So while this passage shows very clearly that God judges sin, when we see God preserving Noah and his family and all the beasts, it's also very clear that God saves, and he saves the righteous. Look how this passage ends in 7.16. You see here, God is a father um, escorting his children to safety. Everyone and all the appointed animals, they gather into the ark, and then it says, and the Lord shut him in. God set his favor on Noah. God commanded Noah to build the ark. God told Noah to get into the ark. And here the Lord Yahweh, that is God with us, God with his people, he shuts him in. And then look at verses 21 to 24. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils with a breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, let me just say that Christians believe that God judges sin. He did so in Genesis chapter 3. There when the serpent, Satan, he tempted Adam and Eve and then they sinned together. And so God then moves towards judgment and he judges Satan. Right? That's good news. He judges Eve. And then he judges man. And then you look and you saw the progression, the steps towards depravity, the ever-increasing sinfulness in Genesis 4, 5, and 6. And we know where that story is heading. It is heading towards, once again, judgment. Because of man. Because of what's in us. Where God made man in the beginning, right? Everything was good. And they were meant to experience God's wonderful fellowship. Walking with God. But here, man is corrupt. And they are corrupting their way. And it's heading towards judgment. But we not only believe that God judges sin, we believe that he must judge sin. He must judge sin because that's who he is. To not judge the world then or to not go against sin is to go against his very character. It is to not be true to who he is himself. So look at these beautiful Psalms, right? Psalm 89 verse 14. It says righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The very thing that he, he builds his throne upon are his own characteristics of righteousness and justice. And then another one, Psalm 33 verse 5 says, um, God loves righteousness and justice. It doesn't say, you know, God loves righteousness and justice sometimes or most of the time or the majority of the time. It just says that God loves righteousness and justice because that is who he is now if you're honest with yourself you probably don't like that 
You probably don't like that. And you might prefer a different kind of God. Maybe you prefer a God who isn't so righteous. You know, we just think, gosh, you know, if God is always righteous, if he loves righteousness and justice, then that means we are going to be judged. And the natural inclination of man's heart is to say, let's make God into something that he isn't. Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel? He notes that there's a popular view of God that that presents him, that makes him not so righteous. It makes him out to be sort of like an unscrupulous janitor, he says. Or, you know, unscrupulous, it means unprincipled. (laughs) If you could have an unprincipled janitor. Or like a shady janitor. Instead of seeing the mess in the public restrooms, he just sweeps it under the rug and hopes that no one will see it. But this view of God, Gilbert says, is finally so incredibly unsatisfying. I mean, that kind of God hides sin. So you should already be thinking, okay, you know when that evil was done against me or that someone sinned against me, or when you see evils going around in the world, do you want a God who hides sin? Or rather, even worse, he hides from sin instead of confronting it and destroying it. I mean, that kind of God ends up being a moral coward. And if you worship that God, if you worship a moral coward, guess what you're going to become? You become a moral coward. Gilbert goes on. He says, who wants a God like that? It's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. He says, confronted with some truly horrific evil, then they want a God of justice and they want him now. They want a God to overlook their own sin, but not the terrorist. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive him. And he concludes, you see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil, right? I mean, wouldn't you guys agree? Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. Friends, if you have ever experienced undeniable evil or have seen undeniable evil or have even heard of undeniable evil, I'm guessing that you want a God who deals decisively with that evil. And that is the God of the Bible. Now, as sinners, I know that poses problems, doesn't it? The question that becomes, what will he do with me? And that drives us straight to the cross of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Where God says... That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 3.18 And there he sent his son to bear our sin and the wrath that we genuinely deserved for sinning against God, for rebelling against him and discarding his law. And really what that means is discarding his own character. But in, in his grace and in his love and in his mercy, because he is a holy God and doesn't let his justice slide... He sent Christ in order to die on the cross for sins. Now that's where we can look at the justice of God and the holiness of God and say, I love God's justice because my sin is actually, or the consequences of my sin are actually paid for, actually paid for. And it says in Romans three, that in Christ dying on the, on the cross, God upholds his justice. It's not that if he pardons all of you guys, that God is no longer just. He says that as he punishes Christ for sin and pardons all of us, he upholds his justice. 
And then he maintains the fact that he is the actual justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And we Christians ought to love this characteristic, right? We ought to love his holiness and his justice and his righteousness that leads him to judge. And again, it leads us to the cross where we find his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. But we also find his grace, his love, and his mercy because he is a God who saves. And this account in Noah proves that. God displays his wonderful patience to people who don't deserve it. And even though he judges some, he also saves some. And that's what we see in Christ Jesus who dies on the cross. God upholds his righteousness and his justice, but at the same time, he displays his perfect love, his perfect grace, his perfect mercy for anyone who would turn and believe on Jesus Christ. Judgment for those who don't, salvation for those who do, salvation for the righteous. And Noah is held up as as an example of one who follows God, one who follows righteousness. Back to the story of Noah. And God's grace. We move on to chapter 8. And we see that the flood finally subsides. And we see God's grace. As he preserves Noah. You guys know how long Noah was on the, on the boat for? People think that Noah was on the boat. Uh, for like 40 days. Because that's how long the floods came. But he was on the boat for over one year. And he didn't know. Right when God told him. You know I want you to go build this boat. He didn't say, God did not tell him how long the floods would last. So you have the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That's in chapter 7, verse 24. And then you got the waters abated after 150 days. That's verse, that's chapter 8, verse 3. So right there, you got 300 days that Moses, uh, that Moses, that Noah and his people, his relatives and the beasts are on the ark. And then of course there's more. Uh, more days than that. So I imagine that Noah was tested in this situation. Again, he did not know. I mean, can you guys imagine being in his shoes? You know, in the last year, um, I'm sure any of you guys have contemplated saving up money and going on a cruise. You know that there have been a lot of disasters on cruise ships in the last year. Um, so you got people, you got cruise ships malfunctioning, people being stuck at sea with some pretty nasty conditions. I mean, one cruise ship had their bathrooms and sewage go out for five days. And reports say that the sewage was dripping from the walls. That's nasty. I mean, but but can you imagine not only having to take care of your own waste, but having to take care of all the thousands of animals' waste? I mean, the smell. Right? My lizards go to the bathroom, and I think it's gross. I mean, just imagine the smell, the tight quarters, the rocking, no sunlight, no fresh air, or hardly any fresh air. I suspect that no one his family, you know, I suspect that in those 370 days that uh, he was on the boat, they were on the boat, I'm sure they suffered from discouragement and some serious spiritual depression. But look what God does. Just as God made a promise to keep Noah and his family and the animals alive, so he makes good on his promises. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And I love this language here. But God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah, right? In 6.18, he says there, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And he basically says, I'm going to keep all of you guys alive. 
And time passes, and, and the text doesn't say that God is interacting him and speaking with him regularly, uh, but time passes this whole entire time, let's say 300 plus days, 370 days, but God remembered Noah. That language of remembrance there it reflects the fact that God is mindful of his people, particularly mindful of his people that he sets his love upon and he makes promises with. He remembers them. You see this in the Exodus as well. And that's what kicks off the whole story. God saw and he remembered. But it's not only Noah that he remembers, right? You, just, you get this picture of God being so incredibly mindful. There is not one thing on the earth that is too small for God to set his mind upon. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. I mean, you see God's grace there just in remembering all these little seemingly small and insignificant animals, even the large animals. These animals, and especially Noah and his family, are on God's mind. He remembers them in the midst of this judgment. And then what happens? Reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God sends his wind. In Genesis 1, it is his spirit. Same word, wind and spirit. And then here he sends his wind and then the waters finally abate. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So, so these mountains, the mountain range is, is massive. The largest peak of Mount Ararat, which is modern day Turkey, is 16,000 feet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone in here has climbed a 16,000 foot mountain and then the second highest is 13,000 feet so they rest somewhere on this mountain range but they're still surrounded by all this water right so they can't exactly go out and after 40 days Noah does some reconnaissance he sends out this raven it goes to and fro it doesn't come back nor does it land he waits seven days then he sends out a dove but the dove returns with nothing he waits another seven days. He sends out the dove again. This time it returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf, which signifies that the earth is finally renewing itself after this great judgment. And then after another seven days, Noah sends out the dove again, and it doesn't return, but instead it makes its home in the new earth. And so finally, after one year of being stuck in this boat, the land dries and God calls them out. Look at 8.15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now this is supposed to be, you know, a time of celebration. A jubilant time, a happy time, very much like Genesis chapter 1. Everything according to this kind of sort of rushing out of the door and experiencing life once again, be fruitful and then go ahead and multiply. And then it's recorded there in verse 20. Look there. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on that altar. So the very first thing that they do is sacrifice and worship to God. 
God here preserves Noah in this boat with his family and all the beasts and all the cattle. And that's evidence of his, of his grace. But you also see God's grace there in the covenant that he makes with Noah. Now covenant, that word and that theme and the covenants that he makes throughout scripture are very important. Very important. And so this is where you see the word covenant appear for the very first time in scripture. Covenant is basically a promise. It's a covenant And the people who make the promise, they bind themselves to obligations that they agree upon. But here, God alone is making this covenant, and he binds himself to his own obligations. And so you see covenant after covenant after covenant in Scripture. So here, there's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Moses. There's a covenant with Abraham. And then, of course, there's a covenant of redemption, which leads to Christ, who establishes the new covenant with his blood. So this promise here that we see in chapter 9 is a wonderful conclusion to the story. And we're going to focus uh, the rest of our time here on this. This here, it reflects that God is a God who chose Noah, a God who saves Noah. And then now this is a God who promises more grace to come in the covenant with Noah. Look there in 6.18. This is where the covenant is mentioned first. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And then towards the end of chapter 8, look there, 8.21, it unfolds more of what this is. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, daytime shall not cease. And then he repeats it there again in chapter 9, verse 11. Go ahead and turn there. It says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy earth. This covenant promise is that God would refrain from ever judging in this type of way again. This type of cataclysmic judgment for as long as the earth remains. We have to ask you, we have to look here, who are the beneficiaries of this covenant? Well, first it's Noah. First it's Noah. So here stands Noah and his family before God as God is making this covenant with Noah in this newly purged and newly recreated world before their God. As Adam once stood before God there in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, with all the blessings of the Lord upon him, knowing that God had created him and knowing that God will preserve him, Here stands Noah, another Adam. The mandate given to Adam are those basically reiterated and then expanded on as he gives them to Noah. In between these wonderful promises that he will never flood the earth again, this promise of covenant, in between you have all of these things that Noah is to do and then also blessings. So, um, okay, to Adam, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, to Noah, God delivers, or sorry, 9, verse 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Another thing, Adam was given the charge to have dominion over everything, to rule over everything. And then here in 9, 2, to Noah, God delivers everything into his hand. But then there's a slight difference. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon all the living creatures. It's like God is lending his divine assistance as Noah was to rule and have dominion in genesis chapter 1 verse 29 every plant yielding seed was for adam 
Right? Here's some. Have some here. Have some here. It's all evidence of God's grace. Have it all for food, he says. In 9.3, everything, plants and animals, are given to Adam for food. And this is God's gracious provision. And that's the change there. Before, to Adam, he only said plants. And then here to Noah, he's saying also animals. But he knows, remember, he knows the violence of man. He knows the violence of flesh. Even the violence of the animals. And so he gives Noah additional instructions in order that they might properly enjoy these new blessings. God tells him that though all animals are now for food, Noah is to maintain and preserve respect amongst humans for all of life. That's why they're not to eat creatures with their lifeblood still in it. That's the command there. Don't eat the animals with the lifeblood still in it. Later on in the law, God gives proper and improper um, instructions, or he gives proper instructions on the proper and improper ways that people are to slaughter an animal for food. Um, and then the clearest way that man maintains and preserves respect among humans for life is by not taking it. It's by not taking it. But then if you look there in verse 5 of, of chapter 9, he says, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it. Require it. That is, every beast that kills man, I will require it. And we see later on in the law of Moses that he fulfills this. And from man. He says, If you want to preserve respect amongst fellow men... There is a penalty to pay for life taking. It says from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for this is the reason for God made man in his own image. It's not that life must be taken because you know what? Murder is not really good for society, even though it is. It doesn't say a life must be taken of the murderer if, when he kills a man because, you know what, a lot of people are going to get hurt, though people do. It says, look, uh, the murderer's life should be forfeited because God was made, or man was made in the very image of God. So a severe consequence. He knows the violence of man that he saw in 3, 4, 5, and 6 chapters of Genesis. And so here he gives additional law that we might experience community underneath God's rule in a way that honors and glorifies him. So this covenant here is evidence of God's grace, certainly to Noah, but not just to Noah. Here you just see God lavishing his grace upon people. Look in 9.8. He says, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And then look at 10. He says, I establish my covenant with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you. It is for every beast of the earth. Now, we're tempted to think, man, this guy, this guy Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he's recording stories. He's really redundant. I mean, why did he just get to the point? But that is the point. God makes his covenant with all sorts of people and all sorts of beings here. Livestock, birds, beasts, everything. And then look at verse 12 of chapter 9. God expands, he says, to all future generations. And then in 16, he just keeps on going. He says that this is an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. That's us. God made a covenant with Noah, but he makes a covenant with you. He brings you into the covenant, Christian and non-Christian. 
your family members who don't believe in God and you who may believe you who might believe in God. You are part of this covenant and God has established it with you. The question is, you know, did you do did you do anything to deserve this covenant that God has so graciously lavished upon you? The wicked and the corrupt today, they experience God's common grace. This is what it's called, God's common grace. He preserves the world. He says, I'm never going to flood it again. And I promise that to you. I promise that to the beast. And that is all God's common grace. Of course, it doesn't save. But yet he gives grace nevertheless. It's similar to when Jesus says things like, I, give the, I, I, I let the sun rise on the evil and the good. I bring the rain on the just and the unjust. And it very much is a display of God's love for people in a unique way. It doesn't mean that he saves everybody, but yet still, he, he, he wants everybody to come to repentance, which is what the passage Pastor Rick read says. He desires not, that no one would perish, but that everyone, that is everyone in the whole world, would actually come to repentance. And he upholds the universe, he keeps it spinning, the seasons that go from one season to the next. He does that because it displays his manifold patience as he desires everyone to come to faith. In Jesus Christ. So just like those days of the days of Noah, when God left a preacher, a herald of righteousness, so he leaves heralds of righteousness today. And all of us, we who are believers, who have actually repented of our sins and believed on Jesus Christ, we are charged to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ as God is upholding the world and displaying his manifold patience as well, so that many would be brought to faith in him. Look what he does as a remembrance of his covenant in 9, 16, and 17. He says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So here God puts his rainbow in the clouds as a sign of the covenant. It doesn't mean that he created the rainbow then at that particular time. It just means that he declared that that is the sign of his covenant. And the language is interesting, isn't it? He says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. He's not talking. He's not saying, Noah, I want you to see and remember he puts it in the clouds so that he would remember. Which means that he tells us, just as he told Noah, he says, look, when you see the rainbow in the clouds, I want you to remember that I am a God who remembers my covenant. And that's what he does in chapter 8, right? God remembered Noah. Just as he set his love upon his people, so he will come and rescue his people. And here in this covenant, just as he declared to all flesh with the rainbow... That he will never flood the, the earth again. So everyone is supposed to look up and remember. Oh, God is really a God of grace. Yes, he does judge, but he also saves. And there that common grace, that grace given to all men, wicked and righteous, just and the unjust. We're supposed to recognize that God is a God of grace and also turn to him. And realize that there is saving grace for those who do. Common grace does not save, but special saving grace does. And that is climax and displayed ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
as God sends his son to die on the cross for the sins of the wicked. That is us. We did not deserve to be saved, just as Noah did not deserve to be saved. But God finds favor with his people simply because he is a God of grace. So forever emblazoned in the sky would be a visible sign that God is a God of certainly judgment, certainly righteousness, but also a God of mercy and grace as well. And we are to be reminded that if he wasn't, we all would be immediately judged, right? But thank God that he displays his patience to us. Thank God that he gives us time to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Because we know that if it were up to us finally to save ourselves, we wouldn't get anywhere. I mean, did you know, look there, if you ever read this section here at the end of chapter 9... Noah's descendants, it's entitled, at least in my Bible, verses 19 to 29. I mean, here Noah's this righteous man in the beginning. He is alone amidst all of his amidst all of his contemporaries, but yet he still sins. So at the end of chapter 9, what's Noah doing? He's planting a vineyard just like Adam. He's tending to the things, but yet he gets drunk and he falls into sin. And his descendants do as well. So his, his, he has three sons and, and this one son named Ham... Uh, when Noah was drunk, apparently he somehow takes off his clothes and he's naked. And Ham, is, is he, he, he enters into his tent. Look in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, we don't really know what exactly happened here. Uh, it seems to be at the very least that he is somehow dishonoring Noah because he's gazing upon his nakedness in some sort of sexual voyeuristic way that doesn't preserve respect and honor for his father. And his brothers, he goes and tells his brothers, he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And it wasn't to say, hey, let's go and protect dad. It was to somehow try and recruit them into it because Noah ends up cursing Ham, there's a judgment against him. Shem and Jepheth, they actually do the right thing. They took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So they're doing what Ham should have done. But so there, even Noah is in need of God's grace and his mercy. Even there, right? I mean, before the flood, he is in need of God's mercy. During the flood, he is in need of God's mercy. And after the flood, he certainly is in need of God's mercy. And we are just like Noah. We stand in need of God's grace and in need of his mercy. And his rainbow is a sign of God's common grace. And Christ on the cross is a display of God's saving grace. So have you seen a rainbow? Christian or not, have you seen a rainbow? When you do, remember that God is a God of mercy who has established his covenant with you. Now, that fact alone does not save you. In fact, if you know yourself to not be a follower of Jesus, and here you know that you are a beneficiary of God's common grace. In other words, you receive God's common grace. It's interesting that you are going to be held accountable for it. And so to reject God and reject his, the sign of to reject God who stands behind the sign is incredibly costly because it results actually in a future judgment. And that, according to the New Testament, is what the flood of Noah points to. 
It points to an actual, real, much harsher, and much more real judgment that lands some eternally in heaven and some eternally in hell. God is a God who saves, a God of grace, a God of mercy. And the story here of Noah speaks about, yes, God will in fact judge, but God certainly saves those who follow him, those who trust in Jesus for Christ's righteousness. So if you haven't, trust in Jesus' righteousness. Repent and believe and know that there certainly is salvation for those who do, and God remembers that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a God of grace and mercy who makes covenants and fulfills them. We thank you for the new covenant that is inaugurated by the shedding of your blood, the Lord and Savior. You, Jesus Christ, your blood as you died on the cross for sinners. We thank you, Lord, that that is powerful. Your blood is powerful to wash away sins to grant forgiveness and pardon and reconciliation and love and adoption. So Lord, we thank you for being such a patient God as we know that every day that goes by is evidence of your common grace as you call everyone to repent and believe. And Father, we pray that we today would all, all of us, that we would be heralds of righteousness in this crooked generation, not in a proud way or prideful way, that says that we ought to have received salvation and that we deserved it because we worked for it. But Lord, we pray that we would be heralds of righteousness um, in a way that reflects the fact that you have showered your grace and mercy upon us and we are undeserving. So Father, help us by the power of your spirit go forward and declare Christ to people who are perishing. And we pray that they too would see their need for Christ the Savior. In your name we pray, amen.